0: We're going to continue in the book of Ezra tonight, chapter 2, we started last Sunday evening, looked at the first half of this uh, manifest of people here that were returning from captivity, going back to Jerusalem, how excited they must have been as they were organizing themselves and preparing for that return and all they anticipated once they got there. Now they're Going back, they've got a lot of work ahead of themselves, and it wasn't going to be an easy journey either. It wasn't like they could just hop on the next connecting flight and land in Tel Aviv and then uh, take an Uber over to Jerusalem. <laughs> you know? I think most of us understand that it was very different back then, but uh, journeys like this and, and uh, things like this would be a year out planning um, before they'd even set off in some cases because of the preparations and the putting together of resources and you know do we have everything we need now obviously this is a very lengthy chapter and not to suggest that any of the words in the scripture are unimportant but um, we're just going to read the last few verses of the chapter though I'm going to be speaking from uh, beginning at verse 59 to the end of the chapter kind of like the second half but I'm going to begin reading at verse 68 uh, to the end and it says and some of the chief of the fathers when they came to the house of the Lord which is at Jerusalem offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work threescore and 1,000 drams of gold, 5,000 pounds of silver, and 100 priest garments. So the priest and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims dwelt in the cities and all Israel in their cities. Of course, this is a, um, a synopsis of the entire group coming and setting up. And then it's really going to, when we get to chapter 3, then it's going to go back and start uh, dicing this up and talking about, okay, what did that look like when they got there and uh, began to build the temple and all the other things that were involved in that. But we've been focusing on this, this list, this manifest here. And the people that are returning Realizing it's time to turn back, to to go to the place where God wants us. Now, we know that the reason they're not there is because they weren't faithful when they were there. They had turned from faithful worship of Jehovah God. They had begun to be very idolatrous. They had begun to neglect the work of the ministry of the worship of God. And so as chastisement, as a learning experience, as, as well as and, and this is out of love. God chastens his children in love, right? But uh, they weren't appreciating what they had, so God took it away from them. So for 70 years, and for many people, when they left, they never saw it again because they would have died in captivity. There were others that uh, lived on, as we read, that were there, went to captivity, came back, and very emotional experience for them. We're trying to take some lessons from these, these groups, if you would, that are here. There is a geography teacher in a middle school here in the United States that was going through the different countries, different regions of the world, and you know, trying to see if her students were getting a grasp on how to identify uh, different things from different countries. And so she put up on her her big screen in the front of her classroom, three pictures, a gorilla, a bullfrog, and an alligator. And then she asked her students to see if they could identify what these three animals had in common. And a lot of them made guesses, you know, well, they're all from this region, they're all from that country. Nope, 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 you know, nobody could get it. Any any guesses tonight from you folks what those three animals have in common? what Mm, that's pretty good you're actually you're actually close let me throw another animal in which is what she did she put up a picture of a llama what were you going to say no they all have not only double letters but double l's okay had nothing to do with the fact of what you know you're in a geography class right so you're thinking hmm what region you know or uh, you know are they from a country region that sort of thing or are they around a certain forest or whatever like that. So it was kind of, sort of a trick on her part but when I you know I, I heard that story I thought you know a lot of times we're looking for connections that aren't as readily apparent as uh, they really uh, might be in reality. In other words when we get around other human beings we we typically ask questions and what we're doing is we're trying to find common ground you know we may not be consciously thinking through what we're doing you know so where'd you grow up right and then you know you find out oh you know i'm from uh cellarville pennsylvania get out you know my dad grew up there and then on it goes right you know that sort of thing happens from time to time and uh we we had a a gentleman here for many years, Harry Murphy. Some of you remember Harry Murphy, and he was a yep, he was a, a salesman for Nabisco. And we, of course, we have visitors all the time. And you know, he was from Virginia, and then lived down here. But it seemed like he could find some common ground, you know, with almost anyway. Brother Kruger's kind of that way too. He'll he'll ask me about someone. He's like, yeah, I think that the my daughter's professor in college is Pastor's best friend. Used to live next door to me, you know? Um, but, you know, and isn't it fun to look for connections like that, looking for common ground? And I've often commented, you know, Becky and I will talk about this as we've seen the church start from just a handful of people and, and grow to where we are now and different people that have been with us. Some have gone on to glory. Some have moved to be near relatives and, you know, different stories. And, and a lot of times you look around and it's like, what do we really have in common with one another, right? seems like we all have such varied interests and pastimes and so forth like that. But what's always precious is, is where the commonality really matters in Christ. That's where it is. So when it comes to identifying people, sometimes there is a great deal of dissimilarity. The key is to find out the important values that then identify us as the children of God. We're we're saved, we're part of the family of God, but let's dig a little further. What what else further binds us as believers together in Christ? And we really began to look at some of that in this list last Lord's Day and saw uh, three different uh, characteristics, how God uses people who are committed. That's definitely a key attribute. He wants to know that, We're in. We're we're surrendered, and he can count on us. Uh, There's collections of people in that way. We looked at that, and then there are people who are constructive, that can carry out the Lord's work. Uh, People are gifted and talented in different ways, but we all have something to bring to the table and to be used by the Lord. So tonight we're going to look at three more in this last part of Ezra chapter two, and so. If you're writing these down, this could be number one, or it could be number four if you're continuing the list from from last week. And that is, the Lord wants to use connected people. In verse 59, if you go back up there and take a look, you see that it says, And these were they which went out, and it lists several towns. And those are towns or regions or communities where? Not in Israel, but back in in Persia, right, where they have been. And, And they could not, and here's the problem, they could not show their father's house and their seed. So the problem is they can't trace their lineage, right? That's a real problem for a Jewish person. They put a lot of stock in being able to trace their lineage. That would mean that they couldn't say, I'm of the tribe of, and then name it. But that didn't mean that they weren't connected, okay? Uh, they still had a heritage. They were identified by the cities which they went up from, these Babylonian regions instead of Judean cities. This, this afternoon, after we finished the service, uh, Brian's mom, Mrs. Stutz, and I were out here in the lobby talking, and uh, we're talking about burdens for people who need to come to the Lord and 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 I was the Lord was just you know giving me different instances I was thinking of the story of Hudson Taylor how he came to know Christ as a Savior through among other things the the, the very moment that he got saved although there had been a lot of groundwork from his family ministering to him as a young man was from reading a piece of gospel literature like a track and in his uh isolation there in his home reading that God brought him to salvation in Christ great story but then I w- went on to tell uh, sort of a synopsis of Stephen Balkenley's testimony and uh, Stephen I'll, I'll never forget in fact I even went back and looked I remember it was a Saturday May 28th 2016 coming up on five years that's hard to believe isn't it Stephen in some ways it's five years Stopped at his house. The Lord said, go see. I felt impressed upon my heart to go see Stephen, right? And went there and you keep the the long story a little shorter, which you can can hear his testimony. It's still on our YouTube church channel. And it's great if you've never heard his testimony. But he pulls out a piece of paper and starts reading it. And all of a sudden I realize he's sharing his personal testimony. He's this man that we've been praying for his salvation for several years. He went off. All by himself and got saved. How, how dare he do it that way, right? Yeah. But uh, praise the Lord, that's right. And so excited. And, you know, special to be able to say, you know, May 28th, that's your born-again birthday, brother. And some of us, some of us can do that. I, I cannot do that. I cannot tell you on such and such a calendar date uh, that is when I got saved. But I remember that there was that day. I, rem- I remember, really like it was yesterday, um, the Lord getting a hold of my heart, the Spirit smiting me, a tender Christian man helping me come to Christ as my Savior, uh, much like Ananias was there for the Apostle Paul in his infancy as a spiritual babe. And what a blessing those are. Now, you know, we don't need to feel like we... We lose some connection. Oh, I can't trace my spiritual lineage because I don't know my born-again birthday. <laughs> no matter. Just like these people were no less Israelites, no less the chosen people of God, just because they couldn't pull up their family tree. So we're still included in the family of God if we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible actually tells us that in Romans 9, 6, that not all israel are uh, of israel you know you can you can be from genetically speaking israel which was the the spiritualized name of jacob of course and that's where israel gets its name from the third of the patriarchs abraham isaac jacob but israel and so you might be able to say oh yeah this is how i can trace myself all the way back to to Jacob, and then therefore to Isaac and Abraham, if you can get that far. You, you know what tribe you're in. You know you're of a child of, of Israel. You could do that, and Paul says, but you still may not really be of Israel. Why? Because he is not a Jew that is just one outwardly, but inwardly. And he's not talking about you know, doing a 23andMe chromosome check like they do these days and say, oh, we can see that you're, you know, so much Ukrainian, so much Spanish, so much Irish, that sort of thing. That's not what he means by one inwardly. What does he mean by inwardly? Yeah, in the heart, right? I mean, do you love Jehovah God? And, and, and as Rick mentioned in the testimony time, there were people that were proselytized like Rahab, right? Like Ruth. And wow, they were they were very Jewish in the way that it really mattered even though they had previously been something else. On the other hand, there might have been some people that were brought up by Jewish dad, Jewish mom, could trace their lineage and really their heart was nowhere close to having the covenant that God had placed in their heart which really mattered. So can you explain to someone else how you came to be a Christian? That's part of what we do when we ask people, hey, you, know, you want to become part of the family of Anchor Baptist Church? Wonderful. Really what we want to know is, how did you become part of Christ's church? How did you, how did you first enter the body of Christ? So that means, tell us your salvation story. Tell us, And, and there's certain things you know, that the Bible says, ought to be in that ingredients you know I mean if you're making chocolate chip cookies you expect there to be chocolate chips in it right you know and if you're me you're looking for pecans too but you know we can we can argue that one I understand you can be wrong and I can be right that's fine but what we're saying is if if you make up cookies and there's not a chocolate chip in it then you're probably not going to call it a chocolate chip cookie unless you want to be looked at strange right well, there's certain things that are going to be present in a Christian. One of those things is repentance of your sin, right? You got, you got to be saved. You got you to know what you need to be saved from. You know, I got a big problem in my life. Can't fix it on my own. And it's not just a matter of trying to help God out and fixing the problem. It's it's by grace alone, uh, by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, right? Ephesians two eight and nine. So a good salvation, a proper salvation uh, event in your life is going to have the ingredient of trusting completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Plus nothing, not in your works. If you're still holding on to, well, I'm still trying to do the best I can. Hopefully I'll get in heaven someday. No, you know, you just, you just dumped the wrong thing into the cookie mix right there. And now it's something different than being a, a Christian, we would say. So the fundamental qualification to be involved in the work and worship of God is just to simply, truly be part of the family of God. I mean, it's really quite that simple. You don't have to go through a lot of coursework and say, are you saved? Are you a child of God? Then praise God. You can be involved in the worship of God. Now, I'm not suggesting that you've got to show papers, you know, credentials. Uh, It's really unlikely that the Jews had certificates that they could show, at least these that we're looking at. And no church can declare that you are a Christian. I can't say, oh, yes, I, Brother Ralph there, he is a Christian. I might say, well, based on what I see of his life and his profession, I believe him to be a Christian. Because Christianity is something that happens in the heart, isn't it? it's lived out and but truly if we get right down to the nitty-gritty none of us can know one another is saved other than you yourself and God himself but we discern don't we we discern that and that's what we're called to do and so we we might even sometimes have someone come to the church and oh i'm a christian well tell me about that you know and lovingly listen and not to be condemning but listen if they're leaning on a false profession the worst thing you could do is say well you know they think they're christians i don't want to offend them Uh, no you, you you better exactly you better help them that's how you need to see they're in a they're very misled misdirected and that's the worst thing you could do so there is a connection of inclusion and these people were still included they they didn't necessarily have their whole act together and And we're we're always going to have people and we we shouldn't even set them aside as well. You know, these are the lesser citizens of Anchor Baptist Church. No, you know, you're in Christ. Praise God. That's all that matters in verses 61 through 63. We see another way they were connected. It was they were connected on the behalf of leadership. Talks about the children of the priest and. And this gives several delineations there. And verse 62, they they sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, and they were found not. And then it says this, Therefore they were as polluted, and they were put from the priesthood. Now this is a little bit different than what we just last saw, as far as being uh, connected by inclusion. It was like, well, you know, we, we know that you are of Israel, so come along with us. Now, when it comes to leadership, might have a little different scenario here. The priests, as leaders were held to a higher standard than just being an Israelite. There were those who had a line, a lineage, but it was not pure. There was a problem in this, and, and it's a problem because God says it's a problem, not because man says it's a problem. For instance, in these verses, it talks about Barzilla. Barzilla was a Gentile from Gilead. And some of the priestly line had married his daughters. And then they had forsaken their spiritual lineage. Therefore, they were called after their wives' names. Now, the other thing that's mentioned in these verses is the idea of the Urim and Thummim at the end of verse 63. Now, Without going into a, a, a deep study of this, which would be somewhat pointless and fruitless, because there's a lot of speculation. And be, be very careful if you start studying and researching stuff on the Internet, and you know people get into, you, know, this superpowered Yeman Thumm, and, Thummim and you know, is it secretly hiding around somewhere, and you know, do the Jews have this stowed away somewhere? And, but yet it was a, a part of the the priestly uniform and usage what was it it was essentially a device that was somehow used to help discern the will of the lord through a process of elimination and let's leave it at that is because that's as safely as we can go and stay within the confines of what the bible depicts for us you know did did have gemstones that flashed and lit up like led lights i don't know okay But that's not the point. God had a way of revealing truth to them, and he chose at that point in in life to do that. Something else that's mentioned in these verses is an individual that is called Tershatha, which is actually not a name of an individual, but rather it's a title that means governor, probably Persian. And so therefore, it would have been referring to a man that We've mentioned a few times, but we won't really meet until chapter 7. And his name is, anybody want to venture a guess? Starts with a Z. I hear it whispered. You're not brave enough to pronounce it out loud, are you? Zerubbabel. There we go. Zerubbabel. And uh, all of this, okay, without spending any time on any of these things, shows that they had some rules. Right? They had some guidelines. Rules are a good thing if they are used properly. Guidelines are good. If you take away all guidelines and rules, you know what you have? You have anarchy. You have danger. You have catastrophe. And so nobody really doesn't want rules. You know, they may say, you know, we don't want rules. What they really mean is they want their own rules right let let me set up rules but we need to understand that rules help us not only honor god but they help us to remain in a state of blessedness as well because doesn't god want to bless us aren't his plans for us plans of peace they are the bible tells us sometimes guidelines are put upon us and we struggle and we might even secretly sneak around remember a husband who was uh, telling his wife that he was being very faithful to the diet that she was trying to keep him on you know she's like honey you need to really stick to this diet and he he was claiming you know I have maintained maintained this diet very faithfully for 30 days she's like I'm having a hard time believing that and then finally, God got a hold of his heart and he said, well, she didn't ask me about the evenings. OK, <laughs> you know, commitment without consistency is really not commitment, is it? You know, we can say, oh, you want to be committed to the guidelines. You know, well, we need to be committed to them consistently in our lives. Right. We need to go to God's word and say, you know, how does this book guide me in my honoring of the Lord? So when it comes to leadership and the connectivity for leadership we we have something even today. We're not without leadership. The church has leadership. We have the pastoral epistles that help give us that and shows the Lord gave to us deacons to help serve, pastors, elders to help teach and to and to administrate things or qualifications for those leadership positions. They're set by God. They're not set by us. It always is interesting to me how that as time goes by, man continues to keep pushing his nose up against the windows of those guidelines that seem to be pretty clear from God's word and wants to reevaluate them. And yeah, does God's word really mean what it says there? You know, why not just take God's word at face value for what it says and realize that he's, you know, but nobody said but that excludes some people well look at what happens here there are some priests that were excluded was that to make them feel badly no it just god says for this particular role of leadership i've got some very definitive things and not everybody can be a leader anyway right you know if you have seven million people you don't want seven million leaders that would be a disaster wouldn't it and so in the modern age in the church we have questions that we we go through when it comes to you know having someone serve as a pastor here or as a deacon here you know what is what is your spiritual track record the bible talks about you know a person being blameless doesn't mean you're faultless that you've never sinned there would be no leadership at all in the church if that was the case but can anybody put their their hands on some handle that would cause a disruption of your reputation how faithful are you in your personal life what's your marriage like you know there needs to be consistency in in that connection of leadership we don't have Urim and Thummim today so we should err on the side of conservatism you know we can't say okay God should should this be an exception should that be and Wait for the stones to flash or whatever they did. What do we do? We go through the principles of God's word and says, Lord, what, what principles did you set down? And what kind of connected leadership do we need to have? And God has really blessed us here at Anchor Baptist Church over the years. Very thankful for the, for the godly people, the men that have served. And I'm thankful for our ladies that have served in the roles that God has established for them to serve in as well. Secondly, the Lord wants a counted people, or we would say number five in the overall list. And this starts at verse 64. Now, if you tallied all the numbers from all the way back to verse three, all the way through verse 60, you would come up short when you look at the total numbers that are given to us. Now, there are names, and I mentioned this last week, in Nehemiah chapter 2, because there's some overlap between the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, right? Ezra is going back to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is going back to rebuild the what? The walls. But as far as the manifest of names, there's some inclusion in, in both books, and there's some names that are mentioned in one and not the other, and vice versa as well. So when you add up the number that are missing to each other's list and then, and then tally it up, guess what? You get the same number. Shouldn't be a big surprise. God's Word is true. It, doesn't, it always holds up to the scrutiny of man's criticism. Uh, the grand total includes all Israelites, 10,777 that were not part of the southern kingdom, 7,337 servants and a total of 49 and there were 42,360 of the other uh, southern kingdom you add it all up and you get 49,727 is what you get and they even counted their livestock which is 8,136 head so there's this tallying going on now this doesn't mean that It's spiritual to inventory, you know, and to take a head count necessarily. But even though they were conscientious in their reckoning, the names left off of each book list indicate that inability of man to scrutinize other men perfectly. You know, Ezra in his humanity couldn't get it exactly right. Nehemiah couldn't get, you know, certain things fell through the cracks. But God, in the inspiration of the Word of God and the canonization of Scripture, he brought it together. That's what it says to me when I see something like that. And, and I look at it and say, you know what? I, I know I'm the pastor. I know we have godly deacons. We've got other wise people in the church. There's things that are going to slip by me, but God might bring it to someone else's attention. And that's why the Bible says, in the multitude of counselors, there's what? There's safety. There's wisdom. That's right. And so uh, we can learn a lot from the counting of people. Why do you count? Is it simply to impress someone? Look at the number of people that are going back. Wow, nearly 50,000 people. Is it to keep track? Uh, is the count one of concern? And I think the answer is yes. There, there is something to the, the counting. For instance, in the New Testament, uh, God tells us in 1 Timothy 2.4, that Christ will have all men, and we could say not a number there, but at least a percentage, 100%. God would have 100% of all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the heart of God. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. He wants zero to be in hell, but that all, 100%, should come to repentance. So there's even lessons from the counting of people. It, it is a blessing. Now, we don't want to ever tabulate at Anchor Baptist Church and say, hmm, we've had, you know, 12 people receive the Lord as their Savior this week, you know, and call up another church. How many have you gotten saved, right? How many baptisms have you done? That would not be the right spirit, would it? But if we can look back at the end of the year like we often do, we sort of do it in January and say, praise God, we had... We saw four people that made genuine professions of faith in Christ and followed the Lord in believers' baptism. That's four more that are out from underneath the bondage of Satan and into the arms of Jesus Christ and in the fold of the good shepherd. Amen. That's exciting. And Jesus keeps track of his sheep, doesn't he? And so we should rejoice in that as like sheep. Thirdly, the Lord wants, or number six, the Lord wants a contributing people. This kind of follows up nicely with what we were looking at this morning uh, on the topic of bringing uh, an offering. Because here at the end, where we read, uh, that's exactly what they're doing in verses 68 through 70. It takes people for giving to take place. Now, theoretically, God could just drop bundles of provisions from the clouds couldn't he i mean he can do that so god is sovereignly choosing to use us and that tells me he knows that we need to be in that process it's not necessarily that he needs us because he can accomplish it any way he chooses but we need to be in that process so it says in verse 68 of ezra 2 when they came And in verse 69, they gave. They got there and they said, okay, well, I guess the first thing we need to do, we've we've got certain resources, surplus. We need to get it out there into a common area so that we can begin to do what? The work of God. Why we came here in the first place. It's going to take funding to build this temple. But then it goes on and it gives us several different phrases that talk about how they contributed, how they gave this offering. For instance, notice the phrase that it says, they came to the house of the Lord. Wait a minute. I thought the reason they're coming here was because there was no house of the Lord. What happened to the house of the Lord? Anybody remember? It was what? It was destroyed. Remember who? Nebuchadnezzar, that's right. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies destroyed it. So as they're standing there, and Ezra writes, they came to the house of the Lord, what he really means is what? They came to the place where the house of the Lord had been, and also what? Where it's going to be, right? And so that's what they're really focusing on now, is where it's going to be. So we could say that as they're giving, they are contributing expectantly, right? This is part of faith. It was not there yet, but they are already talking like it's there. They were giving for that to come. It was a project of vision. We do that all the time, folks, right? We 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 give for a, a mission project. And you know, it might be to help out. We we gave to build this building. This is part of the ministry of the gospel in this vicinity. And so there is an expectation. Secondly, they contributed spontaneously. Notice it says in verse 68, they offered it how? Freely. It was not reluctantly. They did not do it regrettably, wishing that they could hold on to their donation. I think these were like the Macedonians that we talked about this morning, right? They had already first given themselves. They had had all that time where they're walking across the desert back to this place to realize, hey, when we get there, I have some wonderful things that the Lord has blessed me with that I'm going to be able to give and have part and parcel in the ministry of the temple. And so they gave in a spontaneous way. They also contributed independently. Notice it says that they gave after their ability. Don't ever tie up your decision on what to give based on... See what I'm doing, right? What are they doing, right? Don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, right? But, but we shouldn't estimate our value of obedience to god based on comparing ourselves to the activity of another christian there are certain things that are across the board right for every believer to be doing and we we should rightly be exhorted if we are neglecting something like that when it comes to those decisive things about amounts or ways where we say in principle i know i'm supposed to give but personally, I know it comes down to something that between me and the Lord. And so we need to have a, a faith basis of being independent in that and being very comfortable at a place in I'm doing what God would have me to do. Fourthly, we need to contribute abundantly. That's what they did. These people were obviously serious about what God was doing. And let me equate into modern measurements and values and uh, this I looked this up the numbers are a little bit maybe out of date but it'll give you some idea Uh, the monetary equivalents that I'm going to quote to you go back to the early part of 2000 Um, but basically of gold that what they gave amounted to 1100 pounds of gold back Back in 2000, that would be $5,491,000 worth of gold. I can only imagine how much the price of gold has gone up since then, right? So equate it to today. Three tons of silver. And again, back in 2000, that was about $635,000. Remember that a Persian pound was about 20% heavier than our English pound of today and also you uh you add all all this up it was greater than six million dollars that they gave collectively and they said, that's a lot of money you say well it was a lot of people yeah it was still a lot of money even for that number of people to be given and there were some people that probably had almost nothing to give and some had to give more some had to probably give substantially more than anybody else. There was that person who was the biggest giver, but hopefully nobody else knew who they were, right? That wasn't what mattered. They contributed abundantly, though. Like we mentioned this morning, even the widow who gave the mite, percentagely she, she gave more than some that were putting in bags of gold. And the abundance is really based mostly on percentage when it comes to our spiritual giving. We need to also contribute peacefully. Notice that once they had given to God, verse 70 tells us, they dwelt in their cities. That word dwelt, often in the same context where it appears other places, has the idea of being very much at home, therefore at peace, tranquil. They they weren't worried. They had the peace to enjoy what God had given them without guilt that they had robbed God somehow. You know, it's so much better to to do what God lays on your heart and then go about enjoy afterwards everything else that that God has left you to have. He wants you to enjoy it. Don't sit around saying, well, it must be more spiritual to feel badly about myself. No, that's not at all the truth of what the Bible teaches us. They dwelt, and God was happy that they were able to contribute and get peace in their heart. The chief fathers for... Were some of the older and experienced, and some of them were undoubtedly older than 70, as I already mentioned, and they remember being in Canaan before the captivity. So these are men, maybe in their 80s, 90s, 100s or so, and uh, they're, they're witnessing all of this. No doubt they're excited to see everybody participating and contributing. Sacrificial giving proceeds personal comforts though is what's being taught here they started and they didn't say well we we need to find a place to live no they said we need to take care of the house of god first that's really where it starts need to make sure that that's done they gave and then they later settled in their homes did you catch the order there and they had just come on a a trans desert wilderness journey and they said let's take care of this first Another prophet, somewhat contemporary with this, the prophet Haggai, he, would, he comes later. Unfortunately, Israel falls back into their old ways. They stop considering the, the care of the temple precious. And they become more consumed about their, their own houses to the detriment of the upkeep of the temple. And so God prods Haggai, to preach or to pro, pro, prophesy and in Haggai 1 4 he says you know you're, you're asking hey is it time to 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 take care of the house of God and he's like well let me ask you a question is it time for you to live in your sealed homes now that was a way to talk about something that was a little bit lavish for their time all of us you know it's not lavish for us to go into our houses and look up and see a ceiling and to see it finished right but that was, you know, the plastering of ceilings back then, that was a little bit more luxurious. And so they were like, well, you know, my neighbor's got a sealed, you know, roof in his, in his family room, okay? So I need a sealed uh, ceiling in, in my family room as well. And, you know, but we need to give, and the house of the Lord is in disrepair, and, you know, this is going on. It's like, well, if I have any money left over after I finish this home improvement project, then we'll do it. That's what Haggai was getting on them and what God was saying was a problem. There's nothing wrong with us taking care of our homes. Nothing wrong for us enjoying our homes. It is a problem when we push God aside and we make our comforts a priority over gospel ministry and the worship of the Lord. I think it's interesting that Solomon himself, in his wisdom, completed the temple first before building his own house. He wanted to give that the priority. Now, his house was pretty spectacular, but the house that he built for the Lord was also grand and given a priority in time. There, there is a warning about putting our finances into uh, things like capital investments and then excusing ourselves for giving to the Lord's work. Oh, I would, I would love to give to that special offering, but you know, I, I just bought this extra vacation home in Malibu you know uh or you know we we're doing this or we're doing that those things are wonderful there's no condemnation of us adding creature comforts to our life but if we are sheltering our resources and our finances so that we don't feel like oh sorry i can't give then maybe the right thing to do is for us to liquidate some things so that we can give you know there's going to be some regrets of God's people in heaven someday when they reach heaven and realize, you know, I really wish that I had, instead of buying this or put my money there, I had helped out in that missions project when we took up that special offering or helped out that situation or took on that extra missionary or helped out in that evangelistic outreach. Do we really take time to consider when we're making personal financial decisions. How will this affect my flexibility to be used by the Lord later? It is something that we need to be considering. In fact, that's what we see in the book of Acts, right? Early on, they, the people said, we've got all our money tied up in things, so I guess we need to have a gigantic churchyard sale. And, and so they brought their belongings and their properties because the church had some needs. You know, the church had some needs and they were able to give. They were able to do that because, folks, stuff is nice, but stuff can strangle you if you're not careful. And so we see here, as we add to our list from last week, connected people and how God uses connected in Christ. Counted people that were numbered just as the sheep in the fold of Christ. And contributing people. Able to give of our resources. Which God has abundantly given us in the first place. And so as in revival. Maintains in our heart. And we're always turning to God. As these people are turning to God. And returning to their land. May we be the same kind of people. That is lifted up for us in this text. Father in heaven. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons we can learn. Lord I pray that we would apply it to our own hearts. We would seek to. Uh, emulate what Your Word highlights for us as the Spirit of God prods each of us individually. May we be responsive in Christ's name. Amen.